0: Are you interested in or professionally involved in the aeronautical or aerospace sector? Why not join the Royal Aeronautical Society, the largest single body with over 17,000 members? Advance yourself, your career and the industry. Visit www.aerosociety.com membership to find out which membership is right for you. We are proud to present the following lecture All content published by the Royal Aeronautical Society is subject to our website, Terms of Use. Visit aerosociety.com for more information.
1: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Mike Trudgill. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It gives me great pleasure to deliver this memorial lecture in honour of an individual that I admire greatly. The story of aircrew equipment over the last century has been one of (coughs) endeavour, persistence and gradual evolution. Our journey this evening will take us from the dawn of powered flight where hops of a few hundred metres in wood and fabric contractions who progressed through to the complex pressurised aircraft of today. At the turn of the 20th century, much was known of the hazards of lighter-than-air flight. The altitude record stood at 28,000 feet, and this had been accomplished in 1875. They understood the extremes of cold experience on ascent to altitude, the hazards of hypoxia, and the dangers of returning to Earth with a bang aircraft are however different they require airspeed and with airspeed comes wind chill progress in the early years of powered flight was rapid the first flight by Orville and Wright in 1903 covered 120 feet and lasted a mere 12 seconds the following year they were able to turn and the year after that a flight of 38 minutes was recorded in Europe the pioneers of flight struggled to keep up The first flight from British soil took place on the 16th of October, 1908 in British Army aeroplane, and at the controls was American-born Samuel Cody. This 52-foot string bag reached 30 feet and flew 1,391 feet, crashing as it attempted to turn. The engine was still running, and Cody, the pilot, was reputed to have reached through the wreckage blood streaming from his head, to switch off the engine. A year later, Blerio crossed the channel. Over the next five years, air displays and aviation meetings were organised all over Europe. People travelled for miles to see their favourite aviators setting new records. The Daily Mail offered a £10,000 prize for the first flight from London to Manchester. The Gordon Bennett put up a trophy for speed, and the Schneider Trophy was established. Long-distance air races were becoming increasingly popular, including the Circuit of Britain, the Circuit of Europe, and daredevil flights from Paris to Rome or Cairo. The first decade was one of very great achievement. By 1914, aircraft were able to travel at over 100 miles an hour, sustain flight for hundreds of miles, and attain altitudes of 20,000 feet. Flying although a pastime at this stage, for the rich, was no comfortable affair. The pilots were perched on the wing, often on a little wicker seat, and they were exposed to the cold, the wind, and if they were sitting behind the engine, the castor oil that inevitably seeped from them. So the clothing that was, that was worn at this stage was that that had been worn by the motorcyclists and the motor car drivers that had graduated to aircraft. They basically dressed to endure and put on their tweeds and their warmest woolens. And I think you can see from the picture um, how they are attired. Balaclava, scarf, thick gauntlets, um, and caps. And caps, at this particular time, um, it was real fashion to wear it back to front. And that, uh, that distinguished you as an aviator at the airfield. Now, aviation at this stage was possibly... Um, about showing off. Men like showing off, um, but ladies aren't impressed by men that have been showing off that are covered in, in mud and dirt and castor oil. Um, and because of this, the pioneers soon went out to, uh, to get themselves, I guess, the first flying suits um, that were produced in essence to keep their, to keep their, quede, their tweeds um, clean and tidy. And you can see uh, on the left, they sort of Um, London Outfitters were uh, availing themselves of this new market and providing safety helmets, aviation suits, uh, and goggles for the aviators. The picture on the right there is Claude Graham White. Um, He was a celebrity aviator at the time. Um, This is him on the front of Vanity Fair wearing his Burberry flying suit. Um, I suppose it's the equivalent, really, today of David Beckham being on Hello! magazine wearing his Armani jeans. Not only was it uncomfortable flying, um, but in fairness, it was dangerous. And at this stage, uh, there was a lot of debate that surrounded whether to restrain yourself in the aircraft or not. There were two schools of thought. There was one that said actually landing these things was was pretty tricky, and they often turned turtle. So you didn't want to be restrained in it, because if you were restrained in it, you were going to end up underneath it. And there was another school of thought that said, actually, you're better being restrained with this thing, because if you hit some turbulence, you'll get thrown out of the aircraft, and that really is not good. The tide was turned uh, with three notable accidents in short succession. The first occurred to one of um, Wright's uh, display team. Uh, He was flying along, doing a tight turn, hit some turbulence, thrown from the aircraft and fell to his death. The second was the first female pilot to cross the channel. Um, She was doing a a display pilot, again as a celebrity, with a passenger flying over the sea at about 1,000 feet. They hit some turbulence. The pair of them were thrown from the aircraft. And again, those two fell to their deaths in the sea below. And the final one, uh, the final straw, really, um, was our pioneer, Cody. Um, And Cody was, again, flying a passenger on a display flight. Uh, entered some some turbulent air. The aircraft started to break up, but before it completely broke up, he was thrown from the aircraft, and the pair of them were killed. Uh, And that is actually the wreckage of Cody's aircraft. Now, there's a a funny twist to this story, really, in that Cody was deeply, deeply suspicious, and he refused to fly with anyone that was wearing anything (coughs) that was green. What he didn't know was that on the day that he crashed, his passenger was wearing green socks. Following on from this, um, harnesses were developed. The early harnesses weren't so good. And I think that that sort of fed the belief that harnesses weren't such a great idea. Um, Individuals were suffering from internal injuries. Either that or the harnesses were breaking. Um, But by sort of 1914, 1915, the Sutton harness that's still around today was available. Um, And that's a fairly effective four-point harness. Helmets or desperate commercials. This is uh, Mr. Warren of Hendon, um, who took it upon himself to, uh, to develop an aviator's helmet. Uh, he really, really believed in the product. He was desperate to sell it. So desperate indeed that he used to go round to the aviation clubs, throwing himself at hangar doors wearing this helmet to demonstrate how effective it was. It's also said uh, that Mr. Warren used to invite his aviation engineers to draw the largest spanner from their bag and clout him over the head. Um, clearly it worked. Uh, it was quite successful. Um, and aviators, by and large, um, understanding how dangerous it was, and we heard how Cody uh, had blood coming from his head, uh, adopted, um, adopted flying helmets. <coughs> the other thing that happened fairly early on, surprisingly, uh, was the introduction of life preservers. Um, I think you have to understand that this was the time of you know, the uh, Titanic um, and the Empress of Ireland, I think it was. You know, big passenger ships that went down. Lots and lots of life loss at sea uh, and a belief that people should wear life preservers. So uh, the Royal Aero Club actually mandated, I think in 1912, um, that life preservers must be worn. Now, the cheap solution was to use a motorcycle in a tube and to wear that bandolier style around the chest. If you went... To Slightly upmarket from that, then you'd have a cork life preserver. Uh, but they were quite uncomfortable and could be injurious uh, if you crashed. Um, and if you were at the top of your tree and you had plenty of money to spend, then you'd go and get one of these capon-filled uh, body life-saving jackets. I mean, you can imagine being tossed into the sea or a lake wearing all your tweeds uh, without a life preserver, and you'd have been going one way, and that's down. So we now come to uh, the first... First World War, Um, really, we were poorly prepared. There were numerous aircraft, but they weren't very efficient, and clothing um, wasn't available in a bespoke form for aviators. Um, A lot of the early pilots had actually uh, trained privately and then joined the fledgling Royal Flying Corps or the Royal Naval Air Service, uh, and they bought their own equipment with them. The one piece of equipment um, that is probably... Uh, more illustrative of, of aviators of this period than anything else uh, was the brown chrome leather coat uh, that I think you probably remember having uh, watched Blackadder uh, that Lord Flashart uh, modeled. Um, actually, this uh, was quite a good piece of kit um, double breasted, uh, buttoned down the front with a belt to tie up the loose ends, and it had some additional pocketry to allow you to stow maps. Um, Wind and weatherproof and from a man that deals with integration all the time. I think, importantly, you could step in and out the aircraft with it. um, And you could probably uh, operate full and free control movements. Um, And finally, in the event of a fire, uh, leather is actually a pretty good fire retardant fabric. So it was buying them a little bit of protection that they probably didn't realize. But actually, the real enemy was the cold. Um, As aircraft flew for longer, and they flew for further, and summer turned into winter, um, it was perishingly cold. And there are accounts of it being so cold that aircraft crashed on their return to the airfield. I've already said that, uh, that the defense industry was perhaps slightly behind the drag curve, uh, and it came down to improvisation. And I'm no Ray Mears, but uh, the chap on the left looks like, uh, looks like he's got uh, rabbit skins there, rabbit pelts there. Um, he's obviously the Royal Flying Corps. Uh, and the guy on the right, uh, Royal Naval Air Service, uh, far, far more upmarket, uh, and it looks as though he's gone for bearskins. What do I say about this one? Um, <laughs> <laughs> needs must. Um, it was cold. You were outside. You were exposed. It was raining. Uh, and frostbite was a real problem. So much so that it was actually mandated that aircrew, if they weren't going to wear one of these masks, and I'm not going to give you a name for the masks, but if you weren't going to wear one of those masks, then you actually had to grease your face up uh, with whale whale, uh, oil to protect you. Restraint. Um, Now, the Air Force had a... uh, Royal Flying Corps had a different view on restraint than the civilian sector. Um, And I could sort of understand why. In a sense... To restrain an individual within those aircraft at the time would make it impossible for you to carry out the job. So if you were carrying out reconnaissance and you had to lean over the side to take some pictures, you wouldn't be able to do that strapped in with a Sutton harness. If you were flying a single-seat fighter um, and you needed to change your magazine or clear a jam uh, in the gun, you wouldn't be able to do that if you were actually restrained in the aircraft. So the Royal Flying Corps didn't have restraint harnesses in their aircraft. And this inevitably led to accidents. There are numerous accounts um, of observers being caught by their ankles, literally by the pilots. Uh, but this story, I just want to tell you uh, is a story of lieutenant louis strange and Louis Strange in one thousand nine hundred and eighteen uh, entered into um, an air combat fight at eight thousand feet uh, with an Navy attack, uh, German aircraft. Um, after the first two or three passes he He'd completely emptied his magazine, hadn't managed to bring the other aircraft down. Um, and he needed to reload. The aircraft was flying quite slowly at this stage, so the pilot did what they do. Um, he stood up on the seat of the aircraft, on the wicker seat, flying the aircraft with his knees. Um, and then he attempted to release the magazine. The magazine was jammed, and he slipped. And in slipping, he kicked the control column, and the aircraft flicked upside down and inverted. And at that point, Louis Strange fell from the aircraft. Desperate to get back in, uh, he managed to swing himself back and kick his feet into the cockpit of the (coughs) aircraft. In so doing, he destroyed all the instrumentation, uh, but he got his feet back in and he managed to kick the control column and the aircraft righted itself. And the right way up, gravity took over and he fell back into the seat, destroying the wicker seat. And he then limped back home and had to report back to his commanding officer what had happened. Apparently, he was chastised for damaging the aircraft. Um, I'm not sure whether he had to pay for the instruments and the seat. Uh, It is a true story. Uh, And Louis Strange went on to other great things. Interestingly, he established the first parachute training school in the Second World War. (laughs) Which brings me on to parachutes. Why didn't he use a parachute? I had always been led to believe that we didn't have parachutes in the First World War because it was seen um, as a sign of weakness. And actually, if we equipped our aircrew with parachutes, they'd be tempted to abandon rather than rather than stay and fight. But I don't think that's true. Um, and I'll show you why. This is a picture, or would be a picture, um, of an artillery spotter. Uh, this is 1915, 1916. And you can see he's got quite a complex restraint harness there. And behind him, these are British parachutes at the time. They're pretty enormous conical affairs. And I can't imagine being able to get one of those safely into an aircraft with that harness and being able to escape effectively. 1918, German Air Force, um, static line deployment system, again, A fairly enormous parachute there, um, but they had achieved it. But it's a simpler, more low-profile harness, and it's a smaller parachute. So I think we just weren't quite there with our uh, technology. Cold uh, continued to be the enemy of the pilot. Um, And this is the story of Sydney Cotton. Uh, This is 1918 now. Um, and that's a Bristol fighter. And Bristol fighters uh, were operating up to 18,000 feet. You know, endurance of a couple of hours in the winter, 18,000 feet in an open cockpit. You know, you're going to freeze to death unless you're not unless you're wearing something that's going to keep, uh, keep you pretty pretty warm. Um, and the Sidcot suit was developed by a chap called Sidney Cotton. And the story goes that that uh, Sidney Cotton um, loved maintenance of his aircraft. Um, So much so that he had his own overalls, and he'd be down there in the maintenance shed, getting covered in grease, a bit of a grease monkey. um, But that's what he liked to do. One morning, um, they got a shout fairly early in the morning, and he launched as part of a four-ship. They went out to intercept um, a German patrolling aircraft. They didn't find anything. They came back and landed two hours later, and they then went for breakfast. And the four of them sat in breakfast, the other three were perishingly cold, white cold, where Sidney Cotton was, was flushed and warm and one of his friends said to him Sidney, I don't understand you're warm and we're all freezing cold, what's, what's going on? Uh, and Sydney had said, I don't understand either I was, I was down in the maintenance shed I'd got my overalls on, I was maintaining the aircraft, I got the shout, I didn't even get the chance to put my flying kit on. And Sidney thought about this, went back to his barrack, looked at his coveralls, examined them in minute detail, and saw that they were so covered in dirt and grease and oil that, in essence, they pr- produced them or made themselves into a wind type bag. So he was actually sitting in a wind type bag. And at that moment, he had a eureka moment. And he thought, that's what I need to do, is I need to make a wind type bag with some insulation internally. Uh, he was smart enough to put fur around the collars, around the cuffs. Uh, to to keep the uh, the warm air in, and the Sydney cotton suit was born. uh, And it was a great success. Uh, It started off with with his friends having them made, uh, and then it was tested by the Royal Flying Corps, Royal Naval Air Service, uh, and it was widely um, adopted. Moving on to to oxygen, um, or zeppelins. This is 1918. 1918. Uh, Zeppelin and the engineers that worked out in the gondolas uh, they were up there exposed to noise, um, to cold and they needed uh, some protection Uh, and they were as I say operating up at 18,000 feet. So this is a um, a Zeppelin engineers uh, helmet and you can see uh, that it's quite thickly padded um, that's going to give insulation and keep the warmth in. Um, There's hearing protection here um, and there's the rudiments uh, of an oxygen system. It was a single um, tube that fed the oxygen into uh, to the operator. Um, and by 1918, um, the Germans had actually moved away from using a gaseous oxygen system in their aircraft, and they actually had a liquid oxygen system, both in the Zeppelins and the Gopher bombers. Royal Flying Corps, um, not far behind. Um, oxygen-wise, they had gaseous oxygen. They didn't have liquid oxygen, um, but they were far more advanced in the delivery uh, of that oxygen. Um, They had an oxygen mask, they had an aneroid uh, economizer system, Um, so they had the early regulator. There were three settings, um, and it was alleged that this was uh, adequate to provide protection up to 29,000 feet. And this is 1918. Back to cold. Cold is uh, is clearly a theme here, isn't it? Um, Cold continued to be a problem. Uh, Pilots cocooned themselves in as much as they possibly could. It's said that pilots uh, stuffed their flying coveralls with with newspapers, anything to give themselves some extra insulation. But something else was needed. Um, And along comes the heated suit. And uh, the Royal Flying Corps developed this system. Um, It comprised of a a waistcoat, some gloves, and some soles that went into your boots. Um, Very, very fine wires. Uh, it was wired in series, so it was fragile, so it wasn't too reliable. Um, and it was driven by a wind-powered generator out on the wing of the aircraft. Uh, and it was quite effective. It's quite effective, that is, until you dived the aircraft and the generator turned around too fast, it produced too much current, and the wires got too hot. Um, and our pilots were getting their fingers burnt or the, the system was shorting itself out. The Americans and the French also seized on this idea. Um, They were slightly cleverer. Um, They put more insulation in, so that if you did um, over-voltage it, uh, you didn't get burnt. Uh, But they also put a rheostat, so you had some control over it. So we've got two aces there um, from the First World War. Um, Both of them, uh, if this was a pub quiz, I'd ask you. Both of them have a little sort of aircrew clothing secret to tell, both of them slightly maverick. Um, Albert Ball, to start with, um, he had 44 kills to his name. Victoria Cross, DSO, two bars, and a military cross. Killed um, at the age of 20 uh, in 1917. Albert Ball flew as he's portrayed there. He didn't bother with flying coveralls, goggles, helmets, gauntlets, boots, all the rest of it. He was a, was a loner, he was a hunter, and he wanted to be out there in the, in the environment and absolutely sensing the environment um, to be as ruthless as he was as a killer. Baron von Richthofen, um, he was uh, 25 when he was killed in 1918. Um, Shot down on Moreland Court Ridge, there's debate about how that happened, 80 victories to his name. Uh, But when they recovered him, he wasn't wearing um, the very capable German flying kit, he was wearing a Sidcot flying suit. Now this picture really, uh, really astounds me. Um, This is a Hanley Page 5, this is 1918. Uh, You can see the guys have all got uh, Sidcot flying suits there. Um, The pilot sits up here in the outside, outdoors. Um, But to me, end of the war, great big aircraft like that, um, this has all the rudiments um, of an airliner. And I guess hence the airline industry was born. In 1919, Alcock and Brown uh, flew across the Atlantic in their Vickers Vimini. Um, the Hanley Page um, was another one of the contenders that missed out um, on that honour, uh, but they did go forward to uh, form the world's first airlines. But getting passengers into these aircraft when your pilot is dressed like that is going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, I can't imagine Terminal 5 at Heathrow with people lining up, having to put their sitcot suits on, their gauntlets, um, and their big fog boots. So something needed to be done, and we needed to get passengers inside. So fast forward another 10 years or so. This is a Dragon Rapide. You can see the pilot is up the front there. It's enclosed. It's far more civilized. It's not that civilized. Um, you still needed to take your rug with you. You still probably needed a foot muff. You needed a warm coat. Um, and the big enemy here was air sickness. These aircraft couldn't ascend above the weather, so they had to fly through the weather. Um, Air sickness, I'm not sure whether it was because of the noise, the vibration, the turbulence, uh, or the sheer terror in traveling great distances in an aircraft like this. Um, But in those days, uh, obviously no room for a hostess, um, but it wasn't so much your life vest is under your seat, but your sick bowl is under under your seat. Um, and there was some cotton wool there as well, just to make you comfortable. Getting above the weather uh, became a priority, and in desperate attempts to get above the weather, uh, we obviously run into problems of hypoxia and the requirement for oxygen. Um, Oxygen, or the requirement for oxygen, really upsets the passengers, Uh, and it was said it was introduced on some flights, uh, but the passengers weren't allowed to smoke, Uh, Couldn't eat couldn't speak to the person next to them um, and it rapidly fell from popularity uh, and clearly um, The necessity or the need uh, for a pressurized cabin for moving passengers around um, Had arrived So here we are Uh, I guess this is a comet Uh, It's Pressurized it's warm in inverted commas. It's quiet in inverted commas And we're heading towards that shirt sleeve environment that we all know today Um, And our pilots there um, have communication headsets on, uh, and they are seated quite comfortably in armchairs. The interwar years uh, were really pioneering years, and there are a few other points I want to quickly cover here. Um, There were records set for endurance, for altitude, um, but fatigue was another problem that uh, that was bounding along. Um, This is Lindenberg in 1927. Um, His flight across the Atlantic solo was 33 hours long, and it's reputed that he didn't sleep for 63 hours, or he hadn't slept for 63 hours when he landed. Another one of the pioneers at the time uh, was this chap, Wiley Post, um, test pilot. He looks like a test pilot, doesn't he, with with one eye? Um, But as altitude moved on, Past 30, past 40,000 feet, all of a sudden um, the ambient air or oxygen delivered at ambient pressure wasn't sufficient uh, to retain pilots uh, in a functioning state. Superchargers um, on the aircraft, on the aircraft engines, obviously could compress the air into the engine so you could carry on uh, providing performance, uh, but the pilots needed something else. Fortunately, um, For the pilot community, a lot of the work had already been done, um, done by Haldane, um, and diving suits, in essence, were adopted. So here we are with Wiley Post in his rubberized diving suit with his diving helmet that goes on top. The suit was pressurized with oxygen, um, and there was a soda-lime canister in there to scrub out the water and the carbon dioxide. Um, Very uncomfortable very restricted mobility. Uh, but he did achieve an altitude above 50,000 feet wearing his equipment. Right. Um, we're now at the eve of the Second World War, September 1939. Um, I think we all know that, that Great Britain was, was poorly prepared for war. Um, flying clothing at the time uh, was the Baratheia uniform. Um, You can see that the pilot there is wearing his leather helmet. He's got some goggles. Goggles were mandated because um, we were aware of the risks uh, of fire. Um, And he has his headset, so he's got some communications. (coughs) A year later, after the phony war, so August 1940, the Battle of Britain, um, we see our crews again. Life preservers, um, I think it's worth looking at here and just noting that they are partially inflated. And they are partially inflated for a very good reason, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, But the other thing to notice is that they are wearing cravats um, and that um, story that we hear of fighter pilots being allowed to have the top button undone uh, was absolutely true. And that was to give them the mobility they required uh, within the cockpit to um, to carry out air combat. The life preservers uh, were called May Wests. Uh, May West was an actress um, in the 1930s, and the May West life preserver, um, as you can see there, it was bright yellow rubberized material, um, and it was said that it was called a May West because May West had lovely golden locks of hair that flowed down uh, over his shoulders. (laughs) I want to talk now briefly um, about PASC. Um, During the Battle of Britain, there was a real problem with pilots, um, Royal Air Force pilots, that were downed over the sea. Something like 80% of our pilots that were downed over the sea died. Uh, as opposed to 50% that were downed over land. And on August the 8th, uh, 1940, 15 out of 18 pilots that bailed out over the sea were lost. So it was a disaster. We were losing a valuable resource that we could ill afford to lose. Um, What was the cause? Um, I guess we'll never really know, but I think with our knowledge of physiology now, we can hazard a guess that that was cold water immersion that was carrying a lot of them away. They certainly were ill-prepared. They weren't wearing immersion suits. Um, you saw in the previous slide uh, that they were actually partially inflating their life preservers. Mackintosh and pask uh, PASC in particular, carried out a whole series of experiments um, demonstrating the behavior of unconscious individuals uh, in a life jacket. And PASC himself um, was a willing uh, subject to these experiments and one of these experiments um, had him deeply anaesthetized, intubated and then thrown into a pool um, where the observers watched to see what happened. Uh, and there's an account that following one of these experiments PASC had diplopia for two days afterwards. Um, but his work that he did there, I mean extremely important, it defined a lot of the requirements that we test against now um, and it was deemed to be so sensitive that it actually wasn't released generally um, for 15 years. Where's Nick? I do. I do. Uh, this is a, a G-suit identity parade. Um, now, G-lock, uh, A-lock, whichever, whatever you want to call it, um, that wasn't a new phenomenon. Um, during the First World War, it was known as fainting in the air. Um, And during air combat, certainly in the early stages of the Second World War, uh, with the increase in performance of aircraft and the introduction of the monoplane, um, blacking out uh, was a known phenomena. And I certainly read an account of a fighter pilot who who suggested that if you got into a turning fight and there was no way out, one thing you could do was get yourself into a spiral descent where you're being chased um, and pull G to the point that you black out and then count one banana, two banana, three banana, four banana, five banana. At that point, roll out and fly off in a different direction and hope that the guy that's chasing you was also blacked out and spiraling down. How true that is, I don't know. Um, the loss of one of our fighter aces, uh, Cobber Kane, to G-Lock in 1940, um, spurred the work that, uh, that Bill Stewart carried out. And I think we're all aware uh, of Bill Stewart and his modified fairy battle, um, and the 300 flying hours that he carried out in there, um, during which, it is alleged, he G-locked on no less than 200 occasions. From that work, um, the pilots were given some, uh, some useful information about uh, crouching, uh, rudiments of an anti-g straining maneuver, uh, and rudder pedals were altered in position. So hurricanes and spitfires had the rudder pedals raised. Um, but we also had anti-G suits and for the identity parade for the audience. Uh, this one here is a Frank suit, that was the first one along. Um, it's water filled, so during excursions to G, uh, the hydrostatic pressure gives you pressure to your lower limb and provides you with the protection that's required. It was big, it was bulky, it was heavy. Um, the air, the, the the garment was fitted, and the, uh, the pilot went out to the aircraft, and it was actually filled out at the aircraft by the engineer, by the survival equipment fitter, and I believe that was the sort of spout apparatus, and you poured in three or four litres of water at the top. Um, it provided pretty good protection, so they say. Um, it allegedly it was a bit like flying in waders, and the water sloshed around as you flew around the sky. Um, I don't know what would happen if you turned upside down and pushed some negative G. Uh, but apparently what was very amusing was climbing out of the aircraft afterwards and having climbed out of the aircraft, you drained them down and there was another valve at the bottom. Um, and if you had observers, they went away with the impression that you had an extremely large bladder. The Frank suit uh, was superseded by the gradient pressure suit, this one here, 1944. Uh, again comes up almost to heart level. Uh, applied pressure in various manners, in various pressures uh, across the lower limbs. Um, There were some ingenious ways of providing pressure uh, to these suits, including a sort of a bellows with a great big weight on top. And obviously, the more G you pull, the more it squeezes the bellows, the more pressure you get in the suit. You'll have to ask uh, Wing Commander Green afterwards if that's correct. Um, That wasn't too popular. It was too hot. It was too bulky. Um, Coming to my favorite one, the next one along, that's called the arterial occlusion suit. Um, You can imagine what that one did. That's the cut-down version. There was one with arms as well. Um, When you pull, it, it inflated to a pressure that occluded all blood flow. Um, The air crew complained that it was uncomfortable. Um, They also complained that their legs were tingling afterwards. Um, So that one was discounted. And then we come to... uh, to, in effect, a cut-down gradient pressure suit, which is, as we all recognise, a five-bladder suit, similar to the ones that we use today. Body armour. I always think of body armour as as really exciting and really new until I pause to think about it. Um, Maybe it's the fact that it's it's new materials and new fabrics, and we're going to talk about it at the end, Uh, but body armour has been around since protective equipment began. Um, body armor was there for the Romans. They had breastplates. Body armor was there for 15th century knights. They had fantastic suits of armor. Um, And in the First World War, the French had body armor. They didn't use it. Um, This was a steel plate. You can see that it's attached with leather straps. It articulates so that you can sit down in the aircraft. Um, And that reflected edge at the top there, um, that's to stop bullet splatter. So it was there already. But the advent of um, daylight raids and improvements, presumably, in anti-aircraft fire, um, heralded a new generation of body armor. Um, And a lot of time and effort was was put into producing body armor systems. um, And in fact, they were really quite successful. And I'll show you a slide in a moment about that. Um, It was manufactured from little two-inch manganese plates. And they were all held together um, in a nylon carrier. And you can see that this chap has some ballistic protection to his head, um, his torso, his abdomen, and it extends down onto his thighs. Did it work? Um, yes, mortality was reduced. I think there's figures, um, they were the Army Air Force, the United States Army Air Force, um, 1943, 1944 figures. And you can see that mortality was reduced by 50%, and wounding was down from 69% to 13%, so very good indeed. Now, I said at the beginning that I really admired Bill Stewart, and during the research for this lecture, I came across an account of something that Bill Stewart had done, uh, and I thought I would share it with the rest of the audience. Maybe some of the audience already know. Uh, Bill Stewart um, went on a flight in this aircraft, in June 1941. It was a Boeing Flying Fortress. It took off from West Raynham in Norfolk. Um, and it went on a sortie to investigate problems with the oxygen system. They were having difficulties at altitude with the oxygen system. They were getting a, a restriction in oxygen flow. Um, and they also went to look at, I guess, the ergonomics and, uh, and the workload for the, uh, the rear gunners in this B 17. So they took off uh, with a crew of five, um, and three individuals from the physiological laboratory, um, two medical officers, um, there was Stewart, there was a, another senior medical officer, um, and we've got Gaz Kennedy in the, the audience. Uh, they, had, uh, they had a pilot with them as well, who was attached to the physiological laboratory. And they flew north, um, got up to 30,000 feet, between 30 and 31,000 feet, carrying out their, their work, Um, and they were up in the North Yorkshire sort of Catterick area when they entered a cumulonimbus cloud, and they entered some really quite severe icing. The icing was so severe that control was lost of the aircraft after about two minutes. Um, The account says that that particles of ice were breaking off the airframe and entering into the door gunners' ports, Um, but control was lost of the aircraft. Um, The pilot managed to get control back, but during the recovery from that dive, the aircraft broke up in midair. Stuart was down the back with the other medical officer. Um, They clipped on their parachutes. They made their way forward um, to the door gunner hatches to escape. Uh, The other senior medical officer apparently got trapped, got caught up on the mechanism. Stuart went back to release him and then managed to, to leap free of the aircraft and parachute down to safety. Sadly, uh, Bill Stewart was the only survivor from that accident. The rest were killed. And, you know, as I reflect on that, I sometimes think that you know, individuals in life sometimes have a vocation, and that vocation is marked by an experience that they've had. And when I think of all the work that Stewart did, um, looking at escape, assisted escape, um, oxygen systems, I mean, it, it, it just goes on, um, I wonder whether this was a defining moment for that man. Right, Uh, galloping forward then, Uh, post-war era. Jets. Um, Jets introduced all sorts of new problems. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of uh, additional performance. Um, Altitude, assisted escape. Um, Really, I will not have time to go into all of those bits and pieces, Um, but I just wanted to do a quick Top to bottom um, of the clothing ensembles um, as they were then, and what had to change um, in order that this this bespoke equipment worked uh, in this arena. So starting at the top, there uh, we've got a helmet. A helmet has arrived. I mean, helmet absolutely necessary. Um, Slam back during the ejection into the headbox as uh, mounting platform for the oxygen mask. Um, it must be retained uh, in those very high. Um, wind blast forces as the, uh, as the escapee makes his way out the aircraft. Uh, the visors have uh, replaced the goggles. The oxygen mask is robust and firmly fitted to the face. Uh, the restraint system is more complex. We've got a five-point harness system there, um, simplified harness, so you've actually got a parachute system all, uh, all rolled up into one. The life preserver has to be armoured so it doesn't get damaged on the way out. Uh, and we have limb restraints. We've got uh, leg restraint lines there, but later we moved on to arm restraint lines as well. I'm bouncing forward a bit here, probably to the relief of, uh, of some or many in the audience, um, because I wanted to leave time just to talk about the last decade and our experience during the last decade of conflict. I think that rotary crews really have borne the lion's share of the problems. Um, although I do acknowledge that the AT fraternity um, have really suffered with fatigue. And there have been three headlines, as far as I'm concerned. Um, The thermal burden, the risk of fire, and the risk of ballistic injury. And I just want to quickly talk about those. So the thermal burden, um, that's no great surprise, really. We could have predicted this. The climate out there in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the summer, um, is pretty testing. It's 40, 50 degrees C. Add to that uh, a large rotary platform uh, that becomes heat-soaked and sits out there on dispersal all day, um, and you have cabin cockpit temperatures in excess of 50 degrees C. As if that's not bad enough, we then dress our crews um, in all amount of clothing. And they need that clothing. They need body arm systems. Um, they need a fragmentation vest. I don't think anyone would debate that. Um, The Achilles heel with a fragmentation vest, it works extremely well. But to work well, for that Kevlar to function, it has to stay dry. And the only way to keep it dry is to seal it within a plastic bag. And then when you tie a fragmentation vest, which is sealed within a plastic bag, tightly to your skin, it's no great surprise that the thermal burden, the insulation goes up through the roof. Add to that um, the metabolic heat production for the individuals, because they are stressed, And they're carrying around a lot of equipment, um, and it adds up to a thermal nightmare. So, a cooling system um, needed to be explored, shall we say, is probably the polite way of putting it. Um, And this technology um, was adopted. This is a liquid conditioned vest, Um, it was sort of imported from mine clearance um, individuals. Uh, and it relied on circulating a cooling fluid around the vest that you see on the left um, from a pump uh, and a reservoir which was carried uh, in your webbing. And you can perhaps see some webbing very similar to that. That's where your, uh, your little ice bottle and block would be, would be sitting. And there would be a pump in a separate one of those. It was actually quite effective. It provided about 150 watts of cooling. Um, the problem was that it didn't last long enough. And it had to be replenished. And to replenish it, you had additional little liter uh, blocks of ice. And those blocks of ice were kept in a cool box. And if you think of a crew of three individuals requiring one of these blocks of ice every 15 minutes, it soon multiplies up. And you you end up carrying about 60 kilograms of ice to keep your crew cool for the day. Um, So clearly, that wasn't, uh, wasn't a viable solution. Um, The Royal Naval, uh, the Fleet Air Arm, used it for a period of time, uh, but it soon got rejected. So we looked at an alternative. Uh, We looked at an air ventilated vest. Um, This sort of seized on new technology. Uh, There's a little computer fan, um, which was the basis of it. Very, very high power, lightweight uh, fan. Uh, You can go and get power supplies from the cordless tool industry, um, and you can provide a lot of airflow for not much weight. Um, And couple that with Gore-Tex technology, and the back of this looks like a toad skin with lots of tiny, tiny little holes in it. Um, And you can actually push quite a lot of air across the skin, and you can provide some cooling um, and some relief. Subjectively, it was great. Integration-wise, it wasn't bad. Um, It still worked under a harness, under body armor. Um, But I think what happened is we shifted emphasis of operations from Iraq to Afghanistan. The climate changed, the humidity changed, um, and the advantage went away, or the desire to pursue this went away, um, and this technology got parked. Um, I'll just quickly mention phase change materials, because that was something else we looked at. Um, Great if you want a cold bum, but it didn't provide uh, much physiological cooling. Fire, Um, those of you that know me know that fire is uh, is my my hobby horse, as it were. Um, Helicopters are vulnerable, uh, extremely vulnerable. Um, Something like 16% of our helicopter accidents result in a post-crash fire. Lots of things have been done to try and control that. Crashworthy fuel systems, um, automatic extinguishing systems, um, you name it, we've tried to do it, but I'm afraid that military helicopters still catch fire all too frequently. Uh, And because of that, we're left with protecting the crews um, and we give them fire retardant clothing. And the difficulty with that is fire retardant clothing is hot and uncomfortable, and compliance falls through the floor. Our helicopters out in the desert. at the beginning of the conflict, so you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, there was a desire to appear indistinguishable from other ground troops, and that was because there was a belief that if your aircrew were identified as aircrew and captured, then you would be subjected to some pretty severe treatment. Um, so, because of that, our crews were wearing ground pattern clothing. Uh, it was cooling, It was cooler. It was low signature, but it wasn't providing the protection that's required. Apologies to those who have seen this before. Uh, This was me getting DMOB happy. These were my desert DPMs. Uh, And this is what happens to them if you expose them to a flash fire, or at least I hope it is. Here we go. Um, When we test ensembles, uh, we expose them to a representative flash fire that is survivable. Uh, That's about 1,200 degrees C, and it lasts for about four seconds. And you see that those cotton-based ground pattern uh, garments ignite and they continue to burn. And they will burn to destruction. Um, and that is unsurvivable. That's an unsurvivable insult. If we compare that, if I don't crash the computer, I'm recording. with what happens right. with a Nomex flying coverall. There yeah, I have crashed the computer, haven't I? So I should stop the other one. Uh, So exactly the same flame exposure, four seconds, 1200 degrees C and it's gone. gone And that is entirely survivable. So the challenge was getting that message across or delivering equipment that met the requirements of low signature. low signature um, and low thermal burden to air crew. Uh, And I'm pleased to say we managed to do that. There are Plenty of of guys in the audience here that worked on this, uh, fire uh, retardant, disruptive pattern clothing, uh, but I think it was a real success. Um, We can map exactly what's going on here, and if anyone is interested, I'm conscious that time is clattering on. Um, If they want to come speak to me about this afterwards, um, I'm happy to discuss it. Um, but I think you can see from the picture on the right uh, that the levels of protection that have been provided with this multi-terrain pattern clothing um, in fire retardant are uh, equivalent to those that we'd achieved before. Finally, uh, I want to touch on ballistics. Um, this is uh, Flight Lieutenant Fortune. You might have seen this in the papers. Flight Lieutenant Fortune by name and by nature. Uh, Flight Lieutenant Fortune flying is Chinook. Uh, was hit by an insurgent's bullet that went through his tinted visor, through his clear visor, and luckily for Flight Lieutenant Fortune, hit the MVG, the metal MVG mounting plate, uh, which stopped the round. Um, Helicopters are bullet magnets. Um, You know, they're a high-value target. They were flying at low altitude, they were flying low, um, and they were being fired at. So it's no great surprise uh, that the crews, again, wanted to resurrect body armour. Um, and we've been involved in that. Legacy equipment uh, was something called the Norton body armor plate. Um, it was heavy, uh, it was restrictive, um, and you know, particularly for female crew, it was uncomfortable. Um, so there was a program that introduced something called the anatomical plate, and I'll just quickly show you a high-speed video here uh, of what happens to these sort of plates when they're involved in vertical deceleration you can see that the bulk of that plate um, strikes the thighs of the wearer, it then rides up um, and into the face. And there was real concern about that. So anatomical plates were introduced. These anatomical plates uh, obviously provide far less coverage. Um, They're lower profile, so they are more stable on the individual, and you don't have those problems with facial strikes that we've seen before. Um, But you know, the coverage is, is really just the mediastinum and the heart. Um, you haven't got much coverage for the spleen. You haven't got much cover for the, for the liver. Um, and I think with the threat change that we've had now, um, we're moving away from those to a larger plate. And that's, uh, that's a current program of work. Um, and you can probably see some of the equipment um, out in the, the reception area afterwards. The future... Um, some of the guys that work for me said that we'd like to put a slide in the end to uh, stare into a crystal ball and tell us what you think. Um, so what do I think for the future? I think we're going to see more integrated systems. Uh, we've got a couple of good integrated systems over there on the right. Uh, the Air Warrior on the top, the US Army uh, variant for their rotary crews. Um, pieces of equipment uh, have duality of purpose they all fit together, they impose the minimal of burden on the individual. Um, I think we're going to see more of that, or we want to see more of that. Monitoring. Uh, the technology's there already to do physiological monitoring, to look at the performance um, of the individual um, in order that they can be managed effectively. I suspect we're going to see that. I see a Embracing performance enhancement—I think that's all important. You know, our aircrew numbers, our aircraft numbers are reducing, and we need to squeeze every last bit of performance out of the operators. And I think that's going to become increasingly important. Um, but finally, uh, we wouldn't be living in the modern world um, if I wasn't conscious of cost, and I think that cost can't run out of control. So how are we going to do that, Um, and what are the lessons? I think we've absolutely got to understand the user. And by understand the user, what I mean is go out and be a good flight surgeon, um, get involved in what's going on, you know, if you're an occupational physician, get out there, experience the job, see the job firsthand, and understand what's going on. I think that's absolutely critical. Smarter feedback, um, we are all networks now. I mean, we have the benefit of the... Um, ASIM systems, which is an IT system which gives us a live feed of what people are thinking of our equipment on a a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis. Um, That's fantastic. That's a fantastic way for us to reach out for the community and the community to reach into us so that we can help. Um, But last, don't forget what we know already. I think if there's one lesson from this, and that is history forget what I'm going to say there (laughs) I think the lesson from history is that we don't learn the lessons from history ladies and gentlemen thank you very much